The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a show that covers breaking and headline news, offers analysis, commentary, and I interview high-profile public figures. Uh, in each show, I also highlight an exceptional organization, company, nonprofit, or even an individual that does great work in the community. After the headlines, I have two interviews for you today. The first one is with Congressman Raul Ruiz, followed by an interview with Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Let's go over the latest COVID-19 numbers, starting with worldwide. 5.35 million people have been infected, 2.14 have recovered, and 343,000 people have died throughout the world. As far as the U.S., 1.66 million have been infected, 337,000 have recovered, and 97,000 601 have died so far in the U.S. In California, there have been 90,631 infections and 3,708 people have died from COVID-19. Here are some headlines from throughout the country over the weekend and this morning. As the number of people who have died from COVID-19 nears 100,000 in the U.S., President Trump spent the weekend golfing. And you know, when you're president, you sort of say like, I'm going to sort of give it up for a couple of years and I'm going to really focus on the job. Right. You know, there are times to play golf. We all love golf. There are times to play and there are times that you can't play. And it sends the wrong signal, but he plays a lot of golf. He was at the Trump National Golf Club located just outside of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. A federal appeals court has backed California Governor Gavin Newsom's stay-at-home order banning in-church services to blunt the spread of coronavirus, rejecting an argument from clerics that the governor is treading on their First Amendment right to free exercise of their religious beliefs. Coronavirus outbreaks throughout the country have dried up many of the traditional opportunities that high school and college-age students rely on each summer. Junior workers seeking seasonal employment are striking out so much that the April unemployment rate for teens aged 16 to 19 hit 32%, marking a high not seen since at least 1948, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. More than 38 million people have filed for jobless claims since the coronavirus pandemic started. 4.6 million people have filed for unemployment in California alone since March 2nd. The unexpected loss in income is causing many Americans to tap their retirement savings just to make ends meet. And many people who lost a job or have a spouse or partner whose income has declined didn't have much money saved in the first place. Half of Americans who were recently furloughed or let go have saved less than 500 for retirement in the past year, and 70% have saved less than 1,000, according to a report by fintech firm Simply Wise. Of those who have an individual retirement account, 401k plan, or a retirement savings account, one in five now plan to tap those funds. California unemployment rates rose to record 15.5% in April. Employers lost an unprecedented 2,344,000 non-farm jobs. This is according to the EDD. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Today's Let's Get Blunt comes with a call to action. I want to discuss the importance of independent and progressive media, especially today. Now, let's get real. Most uh, media outlets, independent ones, uh, either went out of business or were bought out by big corporations. So Americans are 
getting their news and information from mostly from big conglomerates. And I'm kind of preaching to the choir, and I know that. And I know that you all have been very generous to KPFK in keeping this station alive. We are, of course, asking for your help again during this fund drive. And we hope that you can donate. But you can also do other things to help KPFK to thrive and to grow. And that is to tell people about KPFK. If someone shares your same values, doesn't know about KPFK, or maybe they need a reminder, please do that. And also go on our social media uh, handles and share stories, retweet, reshare. Uh, all of that helps to put the word out there and to keep KPFK commercial free and help it to grow in this extremely important time so that you can continue to enjoy the programming that you're used to, such as the Blunt Post with Vic. So I'm asking you to be creative and to help. It may take just 30 seconds or a minute to share something on your social media. Uh, you can tag us and uh, it will be greatly appreciated. The Blunt Post with Vic. Congressman Raul Ruiz is a SoCal native. He graduated from UCLA, went on to Harvard University, where he earned his medical degree, as well as Master's of Public Policy from the Kennedy School of Government and a Master's of Public Health from the School of Public Health, becoming the first Latino to earn three graduate degrees from Harvard University. Dr. Ruiz worked as an emergency room doctor until he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 2012. He represents California's 36th district, which includes the entire Coachella Valley, which is where he lives in Palm Springs. Dr. Ruiz currently serves on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Thank you for taking the time to be on the Blunt Post with Vic. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you. I guess it's a redundant question, but how are things going with you? <laughs> it's one of those busy moments, uh, always vigilant for any any fires that need to be put down or, or uh, flare-ups uh, in this case, and, and, and also concomitantly working in parallel to add more aid and, and more legislation to help our country right now. It's uh, it's really interesting to be in this position, given my history and my training, and uh, I'm glad I'm there. Absolutely. I, I was going to ask you your perspective as a member of Congress. Of course, you, you hear and know a lot more than uh, the rest of us, even those of us that are reading about it and watching and listening on a daily basis, but you're also a physician as well. And uh, you went through the H1N1 pandemic yourself. So given your perspective, how do you assess things as they are today? Well, we are behind the curve. Uh, we are not as prepared as we could have been. Uh, and we still are not aggressively taking action that we need to take for another potential surge coming in the fall. Uh, we grossly um, did not have enough masks and facials and gowns for our frontline workers to put their lives in jeopardy. As we saw with the surge and an overburdened healthcare system in New York City, um, we do not have enough tests to conduct a, uh, a surveillance type testing strategy or methodology in our communities. Uh, and we do not have sufficient amount of contact tracers uh, in place and locations to help individuals who test positive to be isolated uh, and uh, quarantined away from their family if they cannot self-isolate within their home. And a lot of poor residents do not have that capacity. Uh, and so you're seeing the, the virus spread much more rapidly in working class poor 
uh, communities who are essential workers and who don't have the precautions at work and get infected and then potentially uh, bringing it home and infecting the rest of their family. You know, this situation, obviously, as you said, it's so complicated and there's so many, it's so overwhelmed with uh, item or action items, if you will. Uh, given the complexity of it and that one person can't fix it all, whether you're a member of Congress or, or anyone else. Perhaps our president can, but you know he's, he's not shown much of leadership. Where do we go from here? What's being done by Congress? And also, later I will ask you what we can do as citizens as well. Yeah. So uh, right now, we need to base decisions on accurate and transparent data. Uh, and so that means that we need to have real-time, up-to-date information regarding the amount of tests being done and the rate of po new positive cases, as well as the hospital resource utilizations of ICU beds and ventilators. The reason why that is the first thing that we need to focus on is because we need to ask the question, when is it the right time to start easing some of these precautions and opening up some of our businesses to get people back to work and to help our economy? And you don't want to ease precautions when you're still rising in new cases. Uh, and you're in the upslope or you haven't reached a peak, you want to make sure that you have the coronavirus under control and the numbers are actually going down or they're at a lower level and plateaued at a lower, lower and manageable level. The other, the other criteria that, that you want to identify is uh, the resource utilization of ICUs and ventilators within your hospital system because you don't want to ease the precautions when you are at 90% ICU bed cap uh, capacity uh, because you need a reserve in order to handle a potential flare-up or a potential surge. And we know what can happen if you are quickly overburdening a healthcare system, not enough ICU beds or ventilators, patients can die. So that's why those are the first two things that we need to have accurate data, transparent uh, within the different regions and different counties uh, so that uh, decision makers can base their, their decisions on facts and, uh, and citizens could feel assured that and confident that we've reached the milestones to start removing precautions and opening businesses. Then you need to make sure that you have all the systems in place to prevent infections in workplaces, schools, places of worships, and public events, uh, meaning having a defined list of precautions and protections for our workers and customers, uh, wearing face masks, plexiglass at locations of interactions, routine testing for their workers, uh, screenings uh, with thermometers, uh, and other type of, of screening methodologies to protect the workers and the customers. Then if there is an outbreak or a new case, you need to have the capacity to contain it. And what does that look like? That means you need ample amount of tests done in a way that can quickly pick up new cases and then contain that. And you need contact tracers that can rapidly turn around uh, an interview, identify those that came in contact with that newly positive uh, coronavirus positive person. And then in addition to that, have enough resource managers or caseworkers who can identify a hotel room, a shelter location or some place where that individual can be quarantined away from their family if they cannot be quarantined in in uh, in their attic or basement or or away from their family uh, for the period of time that they need to be quarantined so you need all of that in place to be able to contain it and that's important because you don't want a flare-up to turn into a surge and you don't in other words you don't you want to be able to put out a, a campfire before it becomes a forest fire. 
And that's going to ensure that our businesses stay open, that we save lives, that we don't overburden our healthcare system. If you don't have those precautions in place, if you don't meet the initial timing criteria, then you're recklessly removing precautions and increasing the risk of overburdening a system with a surge and therefore more people dying. And you're also increasing the risk of having to shut everything down again uh, because of a new surge that is killing a lot of people at a high rate, which means that you're only going to be hurting our businesses and hurting our economy even more. So there's so everybody wants to open our businesses and ha- and go back to a, 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 a some resemblance of, of, of what life used to be before coronavirus. And there's the right way to do it, and then there's the wrong way to do it. And I'm advocating very aggressively that we do it the right way or else we're going to hurt our economy even more and you're going to see a lot more deaths due to COVID-19. Wow. Well said, um, Congressman. That was a lot of great information for our uh, listeners. And also for those of you, if you want to check out Congressman Ruiz's website, he wrote an op-ed titled Community Checklist for Reopening. That too has a lot of great detailed information. You are listening to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and I'm speaking with Congressman Raul Ruiz. So, Congressman, I wanted to ask you about your Environmental Justice COVID-19 Act. Talk about that for a little bit. Absolutely. You know, we all know the vulnerabilities of what makes a person at higher risk of potentially dying or having severe illness from from COVID-19. It's the it's the initial list that the CDC and public health experts put out there. Anybody older than 65, people with weak immune systems, heart, lung disease, diabetes, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, but one of the things that we don't speak uh, enough of is the other vulnerability of poverty, of living in conditions that already add to the disparities in underlying illnesses uh, and morbidity, which are being translated in COVID-19. And one of those social determinants of health is environmental injustice. So people of color, poor, rural residents oftentimes are are disproportionately affected by polluting uh, companies or just pollution in the air or live in underdeveloped areas where there's more PM10s that can increase the rate of lung disease uh, and morbidity and illnesses, which which results in more vulnerabilities to COVID-19. And we're seeing that play out in the eastern Coachella Valley where, where you have farm worker communities living in undeveloped uh, areas so there's more uh, pm10s not only from the receding salton sea and the shoreline uh, but also the desert Uh, and you're also seeing pollution from the i-10 corridor that goes from la to uh, to arizona and so these are already factors that render the children in this area having the highest asthma hospitalization rate in the entire state of california so my bill adds 50 million dollars specifically for environmental justice grants that can help communities better address not only their environmental uh, injustice but also as it relates to COVID-19 and that's very important because we're seeing that that African Americans, Latinos, the poor, those that suffer already from health disparities are disproportionately uh, overburdened by COVID-19 compared to other communities. And that's because they, first of all, lack the health insurance, the clinics in their communities. Uh, They're more likely to have less resources to to safely isolate themselves. Uh, I mentioned already their living conditions. Uh, They don't have the extra single rooms that they can separate from their family. And they're they're usually essential workers. So they're going to work with the less precautions, getting sick, taking it home and spreading it. And if they get it, 
they have um, more likely the underlying illnesses because of those health disparities that severely affect them more than others who don't have it. You are listening to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and I'm speaking with Congressman Raul Ruiz. Absolutely. Um, and your district uh, also has a lot of tribal land, and you're also an advocate for tribal health funding. Yes. So we, we, uh, we were successful in including $1 billion for tribal health care systems that lost revenue due to COVID-19 and having to shut down uh, their clinics. Um, and going back to those health disparities, the Indian Health Service is woefully underfunded uh, and under-supported as a healthcare system within the United States. Uh, and, and you can see the morbidity and the illnesses at a higher disproportion, especially in, in the rural poor uh, tribes uh, and reservations because of those factors as well. So if you shut down their clinics and they don't have the revenue to reopen them uh, when there are, are already underfunded, then, then they will uh, they will sink in their capacity to keep a baseline of health, which already is uh, is very difficult for for them to do given their lack of resources. So it's very important that that we focus on the issues of social justice and target with equity and make sure that those the communities that 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 are disproportionately affected receive a receive funding as well, so that we can we can target our resources and save the most lives as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And you have also Palm Springs as one of the cities in your district, which has its own unique challenges and unique demographic. And I know that Palm Springs has, has been hit pretty hard as well. Yes. So Palm Springs, the city of Palm Springs, has been a, a beacon of hope in the Coachella Valley. Their, their council has been ahead of the curve, definitely ahead of the county in in ordering stay-at-home policies, in in enforcing precautions that are based on public health and science, and uh, and so they they've done a good job. The demographics of the area makes our valley and in particular the Palm Springs area a vulnerability to deaths. And we have saw very early on in this uh, initial surge that the Coachella Valley represented 20% of the deaths in California, even though the valley had less than 1% of the population. So that was a very big alarming warning sign that, uh, that I used to really activate resources and get people to act with, with more, a more sense of urgency. And the reason is because 30% of our population, and this is higher in the city of Palm Springs, are 65 years old and older. We have higher than the national uh, average rate of cardiopulmonary disease and diabetes, and the Coachella Valley has six times the the um, the rate of HIV-infected individuals than the national average. So already you can see how the Coachella Valley it has high-risk demographics. Then you add the poverty and economic and health disparities with uh, pockets of, communi- of communities. And, uh, and so it could be a tinderbox for mortality if we don't do this right. Uh, we have three uh, community hospital with modest capacity. Uh, so we don't have large urban hospitals that we can maneuver. They, they, the hospital did a great job at reallocating resources to extend their capacity. But, uh, but these are, these are some, some very unique, higher risk uh, characteristics that, uh, that really should um, uh, uh, inform our community not only to, to take all the precautions uh, as individuals, but also uh, policymakers and the public health system to raise the bar in terms of ensuring that, that residents, customers, workers are all protected. Absolutely. And I know that Palm Springs community is very grateful for the work that you're doing. You are listening to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, 
And I'm speaking with Congressman Raul Ruiz. Speaking of, uh, Pride Month is coming up. And uh, wanted to see if you want to do a shout out to the LGBTQ community in Palm Springs and all over. I do. I do. Uh, you know, happy Pride Month. I know that that uh, Pride Month has a lot of meanings for a lot of people. And, and one is the affirmation of who you are and uh, and the, the fundamental right to love anybody you want to love and to be in the relationship with the person that you love. Uh, and so uh, it's also a, a, a statement of advocacy that the movement is not over, that we need to pass the Equality Act, that we need to ensure that the protections of equality exist not only uh, in, uh, in, in marriage, but also in the workplace, uh, in schools, uh, and, uh, and to ensure that everybody uh, can live a life being who they are. And so with that, I want to give a big shout out uh, and, uh, and I'll be celebrating with the community. Uh, we usually have our uh, Pride Month celebration in November because it's really, really hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so we, we, we save it for the fall so that uh, we don't pass out as we march in the streets. But we're uh, definitely, hopefully we'll be at a better position where we can have the Pride Month parade. And I, I, yeah. uh, I've, I, I believe I've attended uh, every single one since, uh, since I've been elected and even beforehand. Yeah, it's interesting you said that because I was um, doing some planning for KPFK's uh, Pride programming and I thought if there's one Pride that could be saved this year, it's Palm Springs because it's usually the first weekend of November. So we'll see. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Uh, Congressman, I don't want to hold you any uh, longer than this. I appreciate your time. But uh, last, I just want to give you an opportunity to add Anything you'd like to add, a shout out or uh, call to action, anything that we may have missed? Yeah, you know, I, I uh, really appreciate the opportunity, Vic, and, and uh, your show has really reached uh, many, many, many Californians and, and has informed the community greatly. I, you know, I want to take the opportunity to, to request and urge two things. One is that uh, although we may not be able to have control of what other people do and how serious they take this virus, or policymakers in their decisions to remove precautions, we do have control over what we do as individuals to stay safe. Uh, We know that a mask, uh, especially a cloth mask, uh, is more to prevent droplets from your mouth uh, becoming airborne and infecting others. So it's a symbol of love, of concern, of social responsibility. Uh, So I would definitely Uh, Wear that if you're outside or in close proximity to other people. Uh, Maintain social distancing, six feet, washing your hands often, using hand sanitizers. Uh, if uh, if you, you don't have access to soap and water uh, and uh, and stay home as, as much as you can uh, stay healthy uh, if you can go for a walk or a jog or do some uh, calisthenics in your home I would do that mentally healthy so you know turn off the the frightening news at times and, <laughs> and do the do the mindfulness uh, exercises the meditation. Uh, stay connected via Zoom and uh, and the telephone, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and make sure that, uh, that you, you eat healthy during this time. The second thing is that this, these are the moments where you can urge transparency and data, that you can urge your, your policymakers uh, and make sure that, that your voice is heard in demanding that we take the responsible right way of opening the the economy at the right time and not the irresponsible wrong way that would lead to more deaths and having to shut down the economy over and over again. Well said, Congressman. Thank you very much for your time. I know how busy you are um, right now. That's an understatement. So I appreciate it and uh, good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. That was the very brilliant Congressman and Dr. Raul Ruiz from Southern California. Thank you very much, Congressman, for the interview. The Blunt Post with Vic.
Congresswoman Barbara Lee was elected to serve California's ninth congressional district, which is now the 13th district and a special election in 1998. Since her time in California legislature, Congresswoman Lee has been a fierce advocate for ending HIV and ensuring an AIDS-free generation. Since entering Congress, she has authored or co-authored every major piece of HIV and AIDS legislation, including the legislative frameworks for President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief and the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. Currently, Congresswoman Lee serves on the Budget Committee and the Powerful Appropriations Committee, which oversees all federal government spending. Congresswoman Lee is the only African-American woman in Democratic leadership serving as co-chair of the Policy and Steering Committee. In addition, she currently serves as the chair of the Majority Leaders Task Force on Poverty and Opportunity, co-chair of the Pro-Choice Caucus, and co-chair of the Cannabis Caucus. She is the former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus and co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So, Congresswoman Lee, thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK. Appreciate your time. Yes, I'm glad to be with you this morning. How are you doing? Well, you know, I'm working hard from sunup to sundown, of course, working on um, two time zones, being in California and uh, D.C. doing our legislative work from uh, sheltering in place. But uh, doing fine, and I'm uh, taking this moment first to just... Uh, Thank our uh, essential workers and all of those on the front lines, our grocery clerks, our postal workers, people who uh, deliver um, food to seniors, and, you know, just those who are really struggling, first of all, uh, without a lot of help from the federal government in terms of PPE, but just know that your uh, Democratic delegation in California is fighting really hard to make sure that we honor and protect and make sure that your health security and your economic security is intact. So just give a shout out to everyone and thank everyone for being on the front lines and doing the essential work of this country. And our workers are essential and we want to be sure you're treated as such. Absolutely. And I, I hope that um, people are listening will, um, you know, take heed and listen to the health experts and our scientists and our medical uh, professionals and uh, health workers as it relates to physical distancing, uh, using masks, washing one's hands, um, also the, the sanitizer requirement. It's so important that um, we make sure that we listen to those individuals who know what they're talking about to protect uh, the public health and not the White House because the misinformation and the deceit and the unbelievably uh, way that uh, Donald Trump and his regime is handling this is just pathetic and it's um, dangerous. And so I hope everyone in California really, and I think we are here, listening to the appropriate people in terms of making sure we um, not only contain this virus, but that we get over this pandemic and move forward. Absolutely. Well said. That's a great shout out. And shout out to you for acknowledging all the essential workers and and you're right, there's been clear lack of leadership, to say the least, uh, from D.C., but we are uh, very lucky um, in California to have leaders like yourself and Governor Newsom and uh, many others, uh, Congresswoman Pelosi, Maxine Waters, and Adam Schiff, who've been sort of fighting the good fight for people from California, but just the nation in general. So my next question is to you is, you know, you have obviously have a, a very unique perspective. Where are we right now in this transitional phase of COVID-19? Well, I think we're in um, one place we should all be in together, and that is making sure that um, we follow the health protocols. And, you know, that's a standard I think that the entire country should follow. But where we are is that uh, different states, uh, of course, have their own standards, and they're moving in the direction that they deem necessary for the uh, reopening, and in many respects, uh, they're moving too quickly, I think. And, of course, the economic impact and 
people wanting to get back to um, their jobs is extremely important. And so I think our legislation reflects that in terms of the support for people who are unemployed and businesses, small businesses, minority women-owned businesses. Uh, But we also have to remember that in many states now, uh, they're not uh, complying with the health protocols as they open up. And these are brown and, and black people who are essential workers in many of these states. Uh, our food processing uh, plants are uh, opening up without the right guideline health um, requirements in place. Uh, people are dying. People are transmitting the virus. The virus is being transmitted. And so it's still a very dangerous time uh, in many respects in many states, including our own. I mean, we see, and I see too many people still uh, out um, too close with each other, uh, not wearing masks, congregating um, in certain areas. Uh, even though I think we're further ahead than most states, I still think that uh, we have a long way to go and we need to know that this virus is real and it's deadly and it also is disproportionately impacting uh, black and brown people, not only in California but throughout the country in a disproportionate way that is just... Uh, it's scary, um, it's dangerous, but it, it highlights and sheds light on many of the structural issues that people who live before below the poverty line and people of color have to deal with in this country and have to have to deal with uh, since it's uh, founded. You are listening to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and I'm speaking with Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Yeah, and it's so sad that we have to, even with COVID-19, we still have to fight to keep the Affordable Care Act, um, which is under attack by the GOP leadership. Yes, it's a shame. And then we couldn't, because of them, expand Medicaid to those who need it and Medicare. And so the GOP leadership has shown who they are during this period. I mean, they may be individuals who feel the pain of others, but uh, if you ask me, they're, uh, in many ways, uh, they don't have any backbone. And they're afraid to do the right thing on behalf of the American people. And they're looking out mainly for the corporations and for profits uh, for those at the top, uh, uh, you know, the 1%. And it's it's really, during a pandemic, just so sad to see their values that put people at the uh, back of the line when it it comes to uh, support. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of GOP uh, leadership, you've been a great proponent of the HEROES Act, which is now in the hands of the Senate. What can you tell us about that and the status and what you think will happen? Sure. This is an important bill because in it we got more money, $75 billion for testing. Uh, and uh, myself, Congresswoman uh, Karen Bass, we worked really hard to have uh, the testing uh, targeted at the highest impact areas where black and brown people are getting the virus and dying disproportionately. Uh, and we have in that bill uh, a provision to hire contact tracers from the community through nonprofit organizations because contact tracing is essential to uh, getting this pandemic under control. And you have to have people who are trusted because this is sensitive work. And so we were able to negotiate that in the bill. Also, we put in more money for our small businesses for an extension of the unemployment compensation. You know, we had a $600 extension until July. Well, we extended it through the end of the year. And so it's important that um, that uh, the public recognize that Democrats did this. We want to make sure that this pandemic uh, does not uh, wreak more havoc on people's lives. And so we did add a heck of a lot more health provisions and a lot more uh, economic provisions for unemployment compensation, for rebates, uh, you know, for uh, a lot of the efforts, state and local governments. I mean, when uh, the Republicans uh, and when Mitch McConnell said let him file bankruptcy, I mean, this man is so far off, it's, it's pathetic. State and local governments hire fire, firefighters, they, they hire our hospital workers, many of them, they hire teachers, we have police officers on the front lines, and so we put resources in for state and local governments, and for local governments under 500,000 population, extremely important, Uh, so more people don't get laid off. So we're negotiating, we're trying to get Mitch McConnell to bring up this bill, and hopefully they'll see the light and understand that people need it, and we're desperate right now, this is an emergency, it's a state of emergency, our state needs the resources, Uh, we've been putting out a heck of a lot of money. Uh, doing the right thing, and we need that 
the funds coming from the federal government, and it's imperative to get that. Absolutely. I mean, so many people are in limbo and having a lot of financial difficulties aside from the 1200 check. Some people haven't uh, received their unemployment yet. And I think people are just hoping that this bill, once it goes through Senate, it comes out looking remotely like what the Democrats did and what was passed in the House, hopefully. Absolutely. I also want to talk to you about the defense authorization bill. Um, You have, uh, along with uh, 28 of your colleagues, are among House Democrats calling for military spending in the coming annual defense policy bill to be below last year's authorized level, which I believe was $738 billion. Yes, and over the last few years it's creeped up $100 billion. And let me tell you, I do this every year. Uh, trying to get the defense budget cut. A couple of things. I worked for a um, great warrior, the late Congressman Ron Dellums, who chaired the Armed Services Committee, and he was on Armed Services for many years. And we worked then, and as a staffer, to try to get this defense budget under control. First of all, um, we want to make sure our troops have everything that they need. Secondly, we want to make sure that our national security is strong. That's a given. With $738 billion, though, in the defense budget, that, that has nothing to do really with national security and our troops. There is wasteful spending in the, by the Pentagon. You have missile systems that are being developed that are obsolete. You have waste, fraud, and abuse. You know, the Pentagon hasn't even been audited in 30 years, the only federal agency. And um, you talk about taxpayer dollars just being ripped off. Uh, you look at the Pentagon, that's what's happening. And so calling for at least uh, funding no increases in funding below, it should be way below last year's level, is a reasonable start. And so we're trying to build public support for that. It's important that, especially during this pandemic, that resources are freed up to help people in, uh, in terms of our domestic policies. We're going to need money for education, for infrastructure, for housing, for, uh, for unsheltered uh, people. We need uh, funds for to expand our health care system community health care center. This is an emergency. And so where do we get the money? You know, the Republicans gave away $2 trillion in tax cuts. Some say, well, where are we going to get all the money to spend for these measures to support this um, recession, i.e. moving, if we don't do something, into depression? Well, I say one way you do that is look at the Pentagon and you look at wasteful spending. And we certainly know the Pentagon has misspent billions of dollars. And so, yes, uh, we're building support for it, and yes, we're going to fight to try to make sure uh, this budget is not increased during this period especially, so that the resources can be freed up for domestic spending. Yeah, makes sense, absolutely. You are listening to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and I'm speaking with Congresswoman Barbara Lee. So, Congresswoman, I wanted to also ask you about the COVID-19 Funeral Assistant Act, which is it's so relevant and there's urgency about it. Sure, and I'm working with uh, AOC, Congresswoman Alexandria, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on this, and it's a big bill because we need, when you see what's happening in terms of, first of all, our loved ones uh, passing away without, uh, being pr- without their loved ones being present. Secondly, the huge economic impact that it has on families who aren't working. Uh, they don't even have the money to, to bury their loved ones. Thirdly, uh, you know, funeral homes are over, uh, you know, in terms of capacity. And burials are a big issue right now. And so we have to uh, make sure that at least during the last, um, you know, chapter of those lives uh, that have been lost during this pandemic, that families have the resources to bury their loved ones in the way 
it makes total sense, you know, to be in the middle of this crisis and not have enough money to bury your loved ones. It's it's just so tragic and. Um, yeah, it's it's sad. It's tragic, and I hope Republicans will support it. And I want this bill to go through. We're working hard on it. Passionate bill, and it's also a bill that reflects the economic realities of what is taking place as it relates to this pandemic. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up is something that I think most Americans sort of conveniently put it on the side of their brain that they don't think about it, but about the recarceration of inmates and how COVID-19 is really affecting the prison population. Yes, and when you look at what's taking place, first of all, compassionate release should always be something we fight for. Uh, secondly, uh, crowded conditions, dense conditions, uh, these are um, places where this virus can, is being transmitted and, and inmates are, are really getting sick and, and uh, dying. And so we're trying to come up with a strategy where especially nonviolent offenders and those who have served their time or, or at the end of their time, look at what they did with, with um, Cohen and you know all Trump buddies. Right. But, um, we have people who have, have committed minor, uh, you know, felonies, burglaries, misdemeanors and all, serving jail time because either they didn't, the, the bail wasn't available, uh, they, did, they had an unfair trial, and we know the, the unjust criminal justice laws and who gets convicted of crimes in black and brown people. Sure. And so we're trying to say, look, you know, during this period, first of all, we have lives that are at stake, you, you know, and it's all, not only the inmates, it's the guards, it's people who work in the prisons, it's the staff. And, and so we think that we should um, use this moment to reform the prison, uh, prison justice system and allow for the release of those within the uh, context of the legal system to uh, be released. So we're fighting pregnant women that uh, should be released. Uh, we're saying all juveniles should be released. Uh, there's certain categories of inmates who, who should be uh, released. Uh, we put more money into, in this last bill, $250 million more into a second chance for reentry, We allowed uh, Medicaid uh, to be, uh, to, you know, the Medicaid process uh, to be begin while in prison, so the 30-day period, uh, you don't have to wait to be eligible for health care. And so right now there is um, a very clear focus, especially from the Congressional Black Caucus, on uh, de-incarceration and what we can do to make sure that this virus is not... Um, Yeah, and you're fighting against the prison industrial complex for become uh, increasingly for profit. Um, yeah, yeah, always. We, uh, I'm on record fighting to end the for profit prison system. I mean, it, this has got to stop. It's ruthless. It, 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 so I've been happy to talk with you. I'm happy to talk with you this morning. But I want to thank everyone for uh, you know staying strong, vigilant, and making sure that that uh, we in California uh, follow the health protocol so that we can uh, slowly uh, open up, but also so that we can uh, reduce the transmission of the virus and the deaths that has wreaked havoc on so many people here in our state. Thank you again. Congresswoman Lee, thank you very much for your time. Good luck. Thank you, you too. Bye-bye. That was the very fierce Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Thank you very much, Congresswoman. The Blunt Post with Vic. The organization that I'd like to feature on today's program is One Shared World. Declaring our world broken, citizens of 35 countries have formed a global movement to proactively demand action from world leaders. One Shared World announced emergency action plans to enhance public health and defend vulnerable populations, and demands that G7 and G20 leaders place its concerns at the top of the agendas. Declaring COVID-19 pandemic the ultimate failure of our world leaders to address our greatest collective threats, including deadly pandemics, climate change, ecosystem destruction, and proliferating weapons of mass destruction, Citizens of 35 countries have come together to form 
one fair world. The new global movement and political force is building a globally, just a global constituency demanding that leaders at all levels take immediate steps to address our greatest shared challenges. Uh, if you want more information, please go to their website, which is oneshared.world. So that's oneshared.world. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so today I have three quotes for you from different people on mental health. The first one is from J.K. Rowling, and she said, I have never been remotely ashamed of having been depressed. Never. What's there to be ashamed of? I went through a really tough time, and I'm quite proud that I got out of it. The second quote is from Kevin Briel. He said, that's the stigma. Because unfortunately, we live in a world where if you break your arm, everyone runs over to sign your cast. But if you tell people you're depressed, everyone runs the other way. That's the stigma. We are so, so, so accepting of any body part breaking down other than our brains. And that's ignorance. That's pure ignorance. And that ignorance has created a world that doesn't understand depression that doesn't understand mental health. And the third quote is from Linda Poindexter, and she said, one small crack does not mean that you are broken. It means that you were put to the test and you didn't fall apart, indeed. I'm very excited to share with you that KPFK is planning, once again, a very special Pride Marathon uh, in June. This is the first time I'm making this announcement, so just giving you a heads up. I will have more to tell you in terms of uh, date and time on next week's program, but uh, I just wanted to make that announcement that it's coming up. We'll have great programs from interviews to panel discussions, music, comedy, um, all kinds of great things are planned for you. So stay tuned for more details on that. And of course, before I go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, who works tirelessly on this program. And uh, thank you for um, being here with me uh, for the Blunt Post with Vic. Uh, please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. Uh, and for more information, you can always visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami. So both handles for Instagram and Twitter are at Vic Jarami, V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. And again, my website is thebluntpostwithvic.com. The Blunt Post with Vic.